0: Vasudeva Sutam Devam, Kamsachan Ramardanam, Devaki Paramanandam, Krishnam Vande Jagad Guru. So we were doing the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. And we were on the twenty-first verse. Let's just chant twenty twentieth and twenty-first again. Karmaneva hissan sidhim Karmaneva hi san sidhim astita janakadaya. Asthita janakadaya Loka sangrahami vapi, Loka sangrahami vapi, Sampashankar to Marhasi, Sampashankar to Marhasi, Yadya dacha ratish reshta, Yadya dacha ratish reshta, Tadda rojana, Tadda devi rojana. Sayat Pramanam Kurute, Sayat Pramanam Kurute, Lokas Tadanu Vartate, Tadanu Vartate. We were at this point, right? 21st? All right. So, what is being discussed here is Sri Krishna says about the question of action. How do we relate it to our lives? When we are spiritual seekers, quite apart from all our spiritual practices, you may be meditating, you may be devotional, you may be studying philosophy, all of that is very good and that's the core of spiritual practice, doing good, uh, good work, serving others. But then life is also there uh, to be led. You have jobs and families, your personal life. What do we do with that? How do we spiritualize it? To what extent do you engage with the world? So the, in recent years in Buddhism, there has been this big movement called engaged Buddhism. Engaged Buddhism means uh, what is Buddhism's take on the important social uh, issues of the day? What's Buddhism's take on, um, uh, on global warming, on, on, on a multitude of social and economic issues in the world today? Uh, how do we change and reform and develop society, um, do good to people, using Buddhism. And that has been a big movement. I was waiting for the pushback. And today, I read this uh, uh, article. It says, it's it's an article on, the name of the article says it all, Disengaged Buddhism. So it's a proposal. <laughs> it's, it's a I've not read the article yet. I don't know what, what the... It's a professor of philosophy. Uh, and I just want to make a comment here. It's something that I've been seeing at the Harvard Divinity School also, but not just at the Harvard Divinity School, it's also across this country and across the world. Religions in recent years, faced with dwindling interest uh, from, from people, have discovered uh, as kind of great urge to look for ways to make themselves r- relevant so uh, religions f- what we are doing for the homeless all good good all very good causes for um, preventing global warming for the lgbtq till it seems um especially in, uh, in an academic setting, when I see w- the discussions going on in the classrooms and outside at the Divinity School, for example, that that's what religions are. They are huge social and moral reformers and progressives in society. Nothing could be further from the truth. I think, my personally think, this is, you have to understand this properly, and I, I would love your reactions. I personally think that the leaders of religion are making a great mistake. The great mistake is this. In trying to stand up for good things in society, which religion should, what they're forgetting is the core, the, what you call the unique selling point of religion. Let's put, uh, use a marketing term. Uh, the uniqueness of religion. Why do we come to religion? Because religion gives us the best politics? No, it doesn't. Religion gives us the best environmental ethics? Not really. You could make a case for it, but that was never ever the central thesis of religion. Religion is at its heart transcendental, and if it's not that, it's nothing. Religion at its heart says that there is this ultimate reality which transcends our empirical, quotidian life. And if you find it, if you tune yourself to it, you are blessed, your problems are solved, and this life also becomes blessed. Not emphasizing that, and then looking up social issues which you can cherry pick, every 20 years the issue changes and you pick up one and say, we stand for this. Or even more stupid, we stand against this. That, uh, that is a losing proposition. Why, I will tell you. So religion, um, is it progressive on women's rights or not? And that's a big issue of discussion. It's an issue which should be discussed and we should um, be open to change and uh, progress and definitely, so these are things to be taken care of. But at its heart, religion is not there as a champion of women's rights or somebody else's rights. What happens when you do that is one becomes inauthentic. It just takes uh, anybody with a little bit of common sense to point out for centuries and millennia religions have been massively patriarchal. We suddenly... um, try to push yourself forward as the face of change and progress, it doesn't cut any ice. What is the source of um, equality for women or gender rights or whatever it is? Modern constitutions, the law of the land, the ideas of the constitution here, democracy, human rights, uh, religion may have contributed something to it over centuries because religion has contributed a lot to human civilization more than anything else. So if I come forward and say, look, here is my religion. It's better than all others because it gets, gives more rights to women. The immediate reaction should be, our constitution in this country or any, any modern democracy gives much more rights than your religion <laughs> to, to women today. Uh, by doing that, do you f- follow what, what, I'm, what I'm saying? By doing that, you are undercutting the central purpose of religion. And then what happens is, Then you sit back and wonder. At the Divinity School, for example, people are wondering why are people losing interest in the number of nuns, N-O-N-E, nuns. Nearly a quarter of American adults say they are not interested in organized religion. They don't identify as any religion at all. Quarter. Nearly a quarter. That's a huge, huge number. And that's the fastest growing segment. Uh, Not Christians, Buddhists, or uh, Muslims, or Hindus. No, the fastest growing segment is people who don't want to uh, identify with religion. So... I hope you don't misunderstand me. My position is religion should be progressive, religion should be liberal. Everything that that runs counter to modern progressive values, which religions should take a hard look at what they have been saying and be open to change. At least be at par with civilization, not, behind net, not 10 steps behind civilization. You don't have to be 10 steps ahead either. Uh, Ken Wilbert put it this way. Um, he said in the 21st century to remain relevant religions have to do three things. One to stop fighting among each other. That really turns off people today. To Carry on ancient enmities so religion is a cause of quarreling and violence uh, um, between people and nations. That has to stop. Number one. Number two Religion has to be in sync with science, with reason. Like it or not, we are in the age of science just because my book says some particular doctrine and I take it literally and it flies against every I- against proven science. Common sense against science against which is mainstream. you have to be willing to let go. Swami Vivekananda said, that religion should subject itself to the same tests that science does. And if something does not satisfy those tests, something bec- is proven to be false, he says let it go, no matter how su- uh, sweet and comforting. That which is false is can in the long run never be good for us. So si- science and religion must be harmonized with science. I am not saying that you have to adopt a scientific, reductionist, materialist worldview. Not at all. A materialist, it's a worldview, it's not science. But the proven facts of science, uh, which are established beyond doubt, one should not go against those things. Be rational, yes, reason. Um, And religion will not suffer for it, absolutely not. There is not a single doctrine, at least in Vedanta there isn't, there's not a single tenet um, in the higher spirituality which is found in every religion which is against science. Nowhere. I, I, have, I have no problems with it. I have friends who are leading scientists. I have a friend who is a monk and a leading mathematician, um, cutting edge, doing cutting-edge work in string theory. No problem being a monk. Yeah. Third, Ken Wilber says, religion must not be against the progressive values of civilization in the 21st century. Whether it is on gender or race or environment or whatever, religion should not uh, be, be seen as obsolete and pulling backwards there. Yeah. At least be in harmony with, with progressive thinking in, in uh, uh, human civilization. Up to that, it's fine. And, and it, that should be. So that's my position. That's what I'm saying. What about action? What about our day to day life? Should we act? You might say, Swami, are you making a case for religion withdrawing from public life and being disengaged, disengaged Buddhism? So that's a big temptation. uh, When you are, on one hand, is becoming embroiled in uh, social justice issues and that becomes all of religion and then people lose interest in it. On the other hand, is a kind of withdrawal from society, a kind of solipsistic withdrawal into oneself where one has no connection with the issues of the day and with society. So that's the issue which uh, Krishna is dealing with here. He is saying that be engaged. Act before you great kings. But Arjuna is a a king, a prince. So great kings, princes before you like Janaka. He says Janaka and others, they reached perfection through action. Now at this point, Arjuna might think, well, Janaka reached perfection in what sense? Maybe he did karma yoga to purify the mind, the whole Shankara uh, structure of uh, sadhana, of spiritual practice. He did karma yoga to purify himself and then reached perfection through knowledge. And then he had no need of action any further. But that's not true because Janaka remained an emperor throughout his life. Or the second option could be, he was already enlightened and yet he kept on acting, I mean, he kept on working in, in society. For what? Krishna says, Loka sangraham for the welfare of the world. For doing good to the world. I have drawn a fine distinction. I hope it's not too fine. <laughs> it's like splitting uh, hair, hair splitting distinction. Yes, one must be engaged and do good to the world. No, that is not the purpose of religion. This is what I'm trying to say. The central purpose of religion is God realization, enlightenment, nirvana, moksha, whatever you say. That is the purpose. And that, having attained that, Krishna recommends, on your way to attaining that, or having attained it, be engaged in action. Work for the welfare of the world. So this is what he has said. Why should I do that if Arjuna feels? Maybe Janaka did it, but suppose I don't do it. What's the harm if I do not do it? Then Krishna replies, there is a harm yad yad shreshta whatever the leading persons in society do in any organization in the family in the community in the organization in nations and in civilizations those whom we look up to what they do the rest of us tend to follow I, I told you that child psychologists say that children do not listen they'll imitate well we are all children at some level or the other so we love to imitate follow whom we like or admire So those whom we like or admire, suppose there's an enlightened person. Does that person need to do anything at all, anymore, for attaining the goal of life, which already this person has attained? No. So can that person seize action? Will there be any harm? Maybe no harm to that person as such, but there could be a harm to everybody else. Uh, Those who look up to that person, and they may think that, oh, so maybe I don't need to meditate anymore. Look, here is Krishna. Who is the perfect embodiment of all these spiritual values? And he doesn't seem to be meditating. He's having a good time, uh, uh, you know, with the driving the cows around in Vrindavan, or uh, dancing with the gopis, or fighting a war in <laughs> politics and whatnot. So maybe I don't need to meditate. Also, bad example, <laughs> because there is actually a book, Harivamsha, which talks about the life of Krishna. And there you see what an extraordinary routine he followed, getting up before sunrise and meditating for hours on end before he um, uh, takes care of other duties in life. So, Whatever uh, a person of excellence does, others follow. So you, Arjuna, are a leader in society. If you do not act, if you you do not fulfill your duties, you do not do what is good for yourself and society, others are going to do the same thing. Others are going to do the same thing. One more bad example. The Buddha. It's Sacrilegious to say (laughs) anything like that, but there is a point to it. The huge amount of monasticism which followed the Buddha. Because he became a monk and he insisted on monasticism. So over the centuries, monasticism became very popular in India. Thousands of Buddhist monks, uh, huge monasteries, and all supported on public funds and by, by the laity. In the long run, it didn't do much good. Either to the monks themselves or to society. So, uh, if you have uh, an example, yes, there, is some, there are some people who need to become monks, who do become monks. But there are a v- large number of people who remain in society and are very spiritual too. And the I- ideal should s- show that. Even while being a king, like he says, while being a king. Or so in our mythology you find uh, examples of housewives who were enlightened, a butcher who was enlightened, uh, um, a king, a minister, a warrior, um, a hunter in the jungle. So many examples of people uh, in, in on the margins of society or in the mainstream and many of them, m- or all of these were examples of people who were enlightened. Showing, quite apart from the fact of enlightenment, showing that it is possible at any station of life. If you want it. It's not that it will come automatically, of course, if you want it. He makes a point here which I did not uh, attend to last time. Sayat pramanam kurute This person of excellence, Whatever the literal meaning is, whatever he shows to be the pramana, the the um, pramana literally means instrument of knowledge or uh, that by which we get knowledge. But here, what he means is this, and this interpretation I'm taking from and Saraswati. He says, suppose I raise a question like this, Arjuna. Suppose Arjuna has a question in the mind like this. Um, You gave the examples of Janaka and others. But why should I look at Janaka and others? I will do what the scripture tells me to do. For this we need to know, in Vedanta, the Pramana, the source of knowledge, is the Shruti or the text. The Upanishad is the source of knowledge. So Upanishads, the Gita is based on the Upanishads. So I will look at the scriptures, let's say in a wider canvas, I will look at the scriptures of my tradition, what they tell me to do, I will do. Why should I see what this person did or that person did? I will do what what the text tells me to do. That has been the opinion of many people. The problem with that, only problem with that is, when I try to do what the text tells me to do, it's still my interpretation. You cannot get around that. We can't say no. It's your interpretation. But what I am doing is that what the text tells me to do <laughs> is the text has told you to do it, and you have filtered it through your understanding and mind. Means we, especially in this country, you know, uh, in the and increasingly in India too, it's a very individualistic age. So we will say yes, it's my understanding. What's wrong with that? We are all and we are encouraged. Come to your own understanding, um, which is absolutely necessary. But uh, let me give you a. Like that engaged Buddhism and disengaged Buddhism. Let me give you an argument against your own understanding. One sadhu in Uttarakhand said this. He said, I will do so because I have understood it. Let others say what they will. This is the heights of foolishness. Mm. And the heights of ignorance also. Why? I have become attached to and identified with one intellect. How do I know that this intellect is the best of all? It's an instrument. You see, why we we behave in this way? Because we are so attached to the intellect, so, so identified with the mind. I see no difference between myself and the mind. So when I say, I have understood it this way, so I will do it. No. One of the instruments at your disposal, the intellect, has understood this text in this way. Be dispassionate about it. Okay, m- my understanding is this. Let me look at the understandings of a few other people. How is this intellect s- far superior to every other intellect throughout civilization? <laughs> Crazy. When you put it that way, it looks very stupid. Th- yes. Yes. That's inevitable. One can't uh, bypass that. But then that only gives me more reason to make sure that I get as good an understanding as possible. And uh, there, Krishna says, look at the examples. That's why I always say when we have deep philosophical questions or questions about what to do in life, look at those you consider to be exemplary, look at the lives of the saints of the Jivan Mukta, the enlightened people, what would they have done? So often they ask, what would Jesus do? (laughs) It's a good question. What would Swami Vivekananda do in this way, in this situation? Or what would um, uh, Krishna do? Or or at least tell me to do? So the highest ideal, uh, I'll come to you. We must take that into account. Will it, isn't the example of the saints contradictory? Could be. But generally, it's a very, very good example, very high example. How they understand the text and they exemplify it in their lives is a very good input to have. Again, one must not be fanatic about it. Know the text very well and see how the saints have lived their lives. Uh, h- how people, uh, how how great people, people you admire, um, h- what did they do in such circumstances? That's a good way of good way of understanding it. Ultimately, again, you of course, yes. True, true, true. Uh, You thought of it. But many people might not. One person might say, this is what the Gita tells me to do and this I will do. And uh, can do something very narrow and uh, limiting. It could happen. But Shruti tells it. The Shruti always, Upanishads always point you, it gives, see which is higher, text or the enlightened person. It, it's a enlightened the enlightened person but in Hinduism and there is a danger to that what is the danger? I can claim to be enlightened mm-hmm. and then every fool gathers a few foolish followers <laughs> and then in the eyes of my foolish followers I am the enlightened person so what I say becomes pramanam, the authoritative commandment and because it's there in their minds that the enlightened person is higher than the text uh, then uh, let's follow this guy forget about text, no Um, a balance is required, always exercise your reason Um, shruti, yukti anubhuti is the formula shruti is the text yukti is reason it must not fly in the face of reason, it must not be irrational and anubhuti, the experience of enlightened beings not the experience, somebody claims an experience and then asks you to go against the texts and go against your reason. Be careful. Be careful. Did that... Uh, yeah, but, but you are, you are just uh, giving an input. That's true. The Shruti always, in, in Hinduism, you always, uh, the person who is enlightened, Yatra Veda Veda Bhavanti. There comes a point where even the Vedas are no Vedas. Or you, you have reached such a point. But Arjuna might ask, I, I, suppose I have reached such a point, then why should I do anything for anybody else? And he says, that is not the way of the enlightened ones. They always work for the welfare of others. So you should also be engaged in the, in work for the welfare of others. They did what? Absolutely, almost always. That's why I'm very careful. There are exceptions. There are no rules for the enlightened person. That's that's the uh, good thing and the dangerous thing also. So that's why one has to be. Uh, in general, yes, the standard is set by the scriptures. But then, which scripture and what is the interpretation? That's the thing. So it's always good to look at the lives of enlightened people. And, and the texts, and one's reasoning. The thing is, uh, there is no one-size-fits prescription for everybody. That is one thing that Hinduism came to, thank God, and understanding thousands of years ago. A vast range of prescriptions are there. Is action necessary? Absolutely. Absolutely. And absolutely not. Is meditation good for you? Yes and no. (laughs) Devotion meant for you? Absolutely and no. What do you mean? It depends. Everything really depends. Where does the shoe pinch? Where am I starting off? Swami Ashokanandaji's famous admonition to, uh, not famous, uh, nice admonition to one of his disciples. He was in the Vedanta Society of Northern California and he insisted a great Vedantin talking about a non-dual philosophy. But he insisted on karma yoga. Everybody should work hard and uh, dedicate the, uh, and be detached and dedicate the fruits of action to the Lord. So he is scolding one of the devotees. He's I think it's with a letter probably. Madam, you think that I am telling you to do karma yoga action because I, I don't think you are ready for meditation. And you think I will show the Swami. (laughs) And you will. Only not in the way you thought you would. (laughs) If one pursues this path sincerely, one very quickly, if one is honest to oneself, you don't have to tell anybody else. One is honest to oneself, one very quickly sees where one is and what one needs right now. The problem with the scripture directly is interpretation of the scripture going to the scripture and scripture only this has happened again and again in history with mixed results I remember in class our professor was visiting Vienna and he came back not Vienna Geneva he came back that was the source of the um, one of the main strands of the Protestant movement so he came back and he was talking about the um, you know when Martin Luther broke away from the Catholic Church The cry was sola scriptura, the scripture alone. Why should I listen to the Pope or the Catholic Church? The scripture alone. Let me go directly to the Bible and I will do what the Bible tells me. Why should I follow the church? Why should I follow Pope? Why should I follow the saints? So that discussion was going on. And I said, and what was the result? The result was a hundred different denominations, a hundred little churches with their own doctrines. Did you get one interpretation of the Bible, the true, one true interpretation of the Bible? Yes, you did. But the one true interpretation of the Bible was actually a hundred or more, two hundred. Thousands of, now what you have is thousands of churches and denominations. Each claiming to have, or most of them at least, those are more narrow ones, claiming to have the interpretation of the Bible. Not true. It's still an interpretation. Always good to look at the lives of um, people who have sincerely followed this path. Ultimately, it's your own decision, of course. So, Madhusudan Saraswati makes that point. If Arjuna asks, why should I not look at the text alone? And why should I look at Janaka and all these examples you have cited? Krishna says, it is people like this who make it a pramana so yat pramanam kurute what does the text say everyone will give a different interpretation what should i do look at what this person you consider to be a saint did with that scripture that's a very good uh, that's a very good light on the scripture okay now krishna takes this further and he says look at me if you're still in doubt about whether you should act or not whether you should be engaged with the world or not. Look at me. (laughs) Twenty-second. Name partha sthikartavyam Name partha sthikartavyam Trishulokeshukinchana Trishulokeshukinchana Nana vaptam avaptavyam Nana vaptam avaptavyam So if you still, Arjuna, if you still have a doubt whether I should be engaged with the world or not, look at me. I have no duty in this world. In three worlds, in all the worlds, I have no duty. Because I have nothing to gain, Whatever there is nothing that I have not got and there is nothing for me further to gain. And therefore, there is nothing that, that I have to do. And yet, I am continuously in action. I'm continuously, I, I work continuously. So you can take Krishna as a Jivan mukta, as an enlightened person, or as an Avatar. In either case, the idea is that generally we act because we want something. So I want money or pleasure or um, fame or achievement and I work towards that, as one should. And if I have achieved, if such a state comes where I have achieved all of that, suppose I don't want any of these. I want enlightenment. I want to be like Buddha or Vivekananda or something. But I have to work towards that also. There are things to be done. You have to meditate and repeat a mantra and... uh, um, do good deeds to people and attend endless Vedanta classes. Lots of things to be done. So I work towards that too. But suppose you have at- attained that too. Suppose you are an enlightened being. Now what do you have to work towards? You have Krishna says there is nothing for me to work towards, and yet I am in action. Why? He will tell later. But I am in action all the time. I, I do not I do not abandon action. So look at me, and if you think you are enlightened, well, still take a look at me. I am enlightened. You can At least you consider me to be enlightened. Or an avatar which is higher. And here I am engaged in action. So this is the argument that Krishna is putting forward to um, Arjuna. Let me mention here. Does an enlightened person before enlightenment well let me go even further back in the world do we need to act you will say everybody will say yes you will be in trouble if you don't act you'll be homeless very soon and then um, you'll be out of medical insurance you will be out of this and that and and your own body and mind will will um, you know you will become sick or ill if you don't take care of yourself and so many things ha- will happen if you don't work if you're not engaged in action at the personal level at the family level at your professional level holy mother used to say in a very simple way to the ladies around her would say my dear work is Lakshmi, Lakshmi is the goddess of wealth she would say in Bengali "Kaj lukhi. but what does, in which sense does she mean it, she says both the body and mind will be well if you are engaged in work So, and she set an example she worked harder than um, the people around her were a hard working lot but she worked harder than anybody else from early before sunrise till late in the night she was engaged meditation worship cooking cleaning counseling taking care of people so many things and the number of people she took care of from monks to the ladies of the house to the children the, uh, the cows in the cowshed down to the parrot in the cage there was a par- parrot too it would, it, it would call out Ganga Ram, I think. and She would <laughs> cry out from the kitchen, uh, uh, Yes, my child, I'm coming, I'm coming. <laughs> so she took care of everybody. Not as a favor. She says it's a very good practice. It's a very good thing to do. People ask, How do you get peace of mind? Each yoga has a different answer. Karma yoga says, you get peace of mind if you are more concerned with the with helping others than with your own troubles. Very simple, direct solution. In earlier days, I've seen in families in India, one of the persons who would be most hard at work would be the grandmother, often maybe a widow, uh, but she is busy. She's not keeping the best of health herself. But there are... Um, children and grandchildren and affairs of the house to be looked after and so many things. She uh, doesn't have a moment to spare to look after herself. And she keeps well. (laughs) An example. Where if you are taking care of others, even for monks, one very senior monk in our, we have a hospital where, uh, one of the first hospitals started by our order in Banaras in Kashi. So the monks, they actually along with the nurses and the doctors they actually work there in the, in the ho- hospital wards and take care of the patients one of the older monks who was working there uh, in the 1930s 40s maybe he is talking to a group of younger monks uh, he's saying that um, what is all this you complain about that you have bad thoughts and impure thoughts, and uh, you feel unhappy. You have to struggle with your mind. Your mind, uh, you know, is not under control. Monastic problems. What is all this that I hear? When I became a monk fifty years ago mm. in that hospital, the first thing I found was people are suffering, and there is n- there isn't we are co- chronically understaffed. So from early in the morning, I would rush to the hospital. I know this person needs a medicine. That person needs these fruits cut and uh, given to that person. This person needs the bed bedpan to be cleaned. And I am there. And often I would, he, he said, we would miss our lunch. The Lunch would be in the ashram. So you have to come from the hospital to the ashram. We would miss lunch or we would realize late that it's already lunchtime. And in the monasteries, they are a little ruthless there's a bell <laughs> and god help you even god can't help you if you are if you are more than 30 seconds <laughs> late uh, so and these uh, y- uh, he said we would go back to the monastery to find everybody gone and a plate of cold food left out there or sometimes we miss that too and then we rushed back missing that most important thing in uh, you know the indian nowadays the, the great indian siesta not so, people are very busy in India, but in monasteries, we preserve the ancient tradition. <laughs> Somebody said, Belurmat, our main monastery. Yeah, they said, what a wonderful place. When everybody's up and working, these monks are sleeping. <laughs> Every, that's a peak working hour, 2 or two o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, gates shut. And uh, all the swamis are in but in the, the defense of the Swamis, they get up at 3.30 in the morning. so they need <laughs> so it's, But it's an old tradition. In India, everybody used to do that until recently. Now it's very corporatized. Everybody's working all the time. Um, and we would miss that. The afternoon siesta, go back to the hospital and work and work. Till we would come back, we would miss the evening meditation. And we would come back late in the night. Wha- if there was any food, we would have that. And go to bed we would repeat the mantra a few times, the moment our heads touch the pillow, go to sleep, we are so exhausted, and 50 years have passed, just passed like that, we never felt, that we have to struggle with, uh, you know, impure thoughts, or anger, or lust, and mind is not under control, there is no time for that, <laughs> of course, all credit to him because he had the mentality to stick it through. for, And that's a machine which purifies you. This is called Chitta Shuddhi, purification of the mind. So work is, is absolutely very good when you're climbing your way up to enlightenment. In the world, yes, and on your way to enlightenment, work is absolutely necessary. But the question is, after enlightenment, Krishna is talking about somebody. Suppose Arjuna says, I know, I'm enlightened. Then... Do I still, do I do, do need to do work for people? Um, here, there are three alternatives. Swami Gambhiranandaji, who was the 11th president of the order, he wrote a very nice essay about this. Enlightened person and work. Three possibilities for the Jivan Mukta. Jivan Mukta is enlightened while living, still in this body. The ideal of the Bhagavad Gita. You realize your identity as the absolute, you know who you are, what you are. And you continue to exist in this body as long as the body lives. He says there are actually three possibilities. One is, the enlightened person has no engagement with the world. Fully enlightened. Has no engagement with the world. Has nothing to do with, uh, with the world. Or at least more or less nothing to do with the world. And there are examples. See, that's why this is a question. If everybody you consider to be enlightened was up and doing, running a hospital or school, okay, there's no question about it. They they do it. So I have to look which which is the closest hospital I can (laughs) go and work in or or, uh, school or something. But that's not true. There were so many enlightened people, and there are till now, who have absolutely nothing to do with society. It's possible. So he says the first category is an enlightened being who is absolutely absorbed in the transcendent aspect of Brahman. I am Brahman. The world is an appearance. I have nothing to do with it. Including one's own body and mind. Um, absolutely. For an enlightened person, even th- is one's own body and mind is part of the world. I, is not Brahman. It's an like a snake in a rope. Do I need to get up and drive the snake away? No. It's a mistake. It's not there. Uh, somebody. Another example is the blue color in the sky. How do you remove the blue color in the sky? Do you scrub? No. Gaurapada in the Mandukya Karika says, if the samsara was there, we could have removed it. It's not there. (laughs) So the enlightened person, there are examples. Ramana Maharshi, great example. He lived uh, on a mountain. Yes, so many people went there and they got uh, benefit from it. But, he was not engaged in um, social action. Don't mistake me. He did a lot of work. Swami Damodarananda who was a great Swami of our order who passed away a few years ago he was nearly 96 one of the most wonderful Swamis I still have wonderful memories of him as a young man young boy actually he w- he ran away from home and went to uh, meet Ramana Maharshi and he went to Ramana Maharshi he wrote about it later in an article in the mountain path uh, he went to Ramana Maharshi and he stayed in that place in the Arunachala, in the cave with Ramana Maharshi for a few days and he writes about how they were sitting and dressing vegetables together. Ramana Maharshi himself, he would take part in all the activities of the ashram. He would insist in doing all the work which everybody else was doing. And and then he asked, what do you want in life? What do you want to do? And Ramana Maharshi told him, go to the Ramakrishna order and become a monk. And he obeyed. And so he went, and, and then he was there for so many years. I saw him in his old age. I attended some of his classes. Totally irrelevant fact, but interesting fact. Even at the age of 95, he had perfect teeth. <laughs> and his dental records are a case study in, the, um, in a medical college in Australia. <laughs> yes, that, you, that it is possible. <laughs> anyway that's nothing to do with here <laughs> or there with to do with enlightenment <laughs> so he's, he said that he saw ramana marshi working uh, actually doing work so but that's there but not not on the scale of schools and colleges and hospitals and uh, none of that uh, no social action even more totapuri a wandering monk knower of brahman enlightened probably the only interaction he had with society was the occasional student he taught. And the students were of a little high caliber, like Ramakrishna and <laughs> other <so laughs> um And that's not an isolated example. There have been such people. Is it all right? It's perfectly all right. Sri Ramakrishna himself tells the story about the three friends who are walking along and they see a high wall and they're curious about what's on the other side of the wall and with great difficulty one of them climbs up and sees something on the other side and shouts, oh, how wonderful, and dances on top of the parapet and jumps on the other side. The other two are befuddled. What happened? What did he see? Second person climbs over and starts jumping and shouting, oh, how wonderful, and jumps over, without telling anything to this. The third person w- climbs up there, and he sees a wonderful festival going on on the other side, um, uh, like a festival of joy. and Wonderful things are happening. And he wants to join his friends there and, and uh, have fun there. But then he realizes... Who will go back to the village and tell the poor suffering people there that such a sans- wonderful thing is there? So he turns around. He doesn't go over the uh, ledge. He t- comes back to. So those are the people who come back and tell us. They come back and tell us and thank God. <laughs> so that's the first category, who do not get involved. Uh, so this, uh, the first two who jumped over the ledge, they belong to the first category. Some teach a few people, some may not even teach Some may remain completely unknown to society. Sri Ramakrishna says, there are enlightened people whom you would take for madmen. Crazy. There's a second category, Swami Gambhiranji says, of an enlightened being, Jeevan Mukta, who regards this world, not as non existence as a wonderful play of Maya. And delights in the play of Maya. Still not much practical good to you. But sees the world as, as a, like a magic show there's a description of a yogi who came to Dakshineshwar when Sri Ramakrishna was there and he would meditate all day in his room only once in a day he would come out of the room and look at, at the Ganga the river Ganga and the temple and the towering maybe the clouds in the sky and, and shout wow, wow wonderful, wonderful oh how wonderful all this is and then go back to his room and go back into meditation that's the second category who look upon the first category looks upon the world as an appearance not uh, no attention there they are absorbed in brahman or in god second category looks upon the world as a magic show as something wonderful they are sometimes these people are the crazy people of god they l- they behave like lunatics sometimes the third category swami gambhirand says is those who see the same, they are also fully enlightened. They see all of this, and their hearts hearts overflow with compassion for the rest of us. And they turn uh, their back on um, that complete transcendence, and they come back to us, and they teach, and they help us. These are the great teachers of religion from the centuries, from from millennia. And to them we owe this royal road to uh, enlightenment. Whether it's the Buddhas or the Ramakrishnas or um, Vivekananda, Christ, and so on, we have different classifications. We we say someone is an incarnation, someone is a prophet, someone is a uh, Jivan Mukta. That's all later systematization. But definitely, these are people who have shown us the path to enlightenment. The great spiritual masters of humanity. So these are the three options. Why I said this, Sri Krishna prefers the, Sri Krishna prefers the third one. Correct. The third option, if you ask Sri Krishna, what should one do? What should an enlightened person do? He says it's better to be like the third one. Yeah. We were reading the Sermon on the Mount. There's a part I did not read in the Bible. Jesus Christ says to his to his apostles that you will be like a city on, on on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden. So he also wants his disciples who have got that knowledge, uh, then share it uh, let it shine forth in the world. there are many people who are hungry for this so they, they will Buddha when Mara which is uh, the Buddhist equivalent of Maya tempted him to stop him from getting enlightenment did not work, scared him, tried to scare him, did not work. finally the Buddha got enlightenment one last try Mara appeared before the Buddha and said, uh, well you have done it, you have seen through the veils of illusion, you have seen the truth. But you know something, nobody will ever understand what, what, what you have seen. There is no use trying to tell these people. And the Buddha, thank God, he said, some perchance may understand. And so he walked to Sarnath to give his first sermon there. And then 2,500 years ago, the whole history of Buddhism starts from there. So, Sri Krishna clearly says he prefers this third kind who is engaged for the welfare of the world. One more. Yeah. Yadi hiyam nakvatayam, yadi ham navatayam, jato karmanyatandrita, jato karmanyatandrita, mama vatmanu vatante. If I did not do so, that means if I did not engage myself in action, Atandrita tirelessly, tirelessly. then humanity would follow in my footsteps. They would do, if I did not perform action, they would also stop performing action. Mama, The path that I take, humanity too would follow it. What's wrong with that? You are an enlightened person. Even Shankaracharya says, So what's r- wrong with that? <laughs> Shankaracharya comments here. What is the harm if people follow you? You are Krishna, you are an enlightened person, you are an avatar, people should follow you. Suppose you do not act and people do follow you, what will happen? Twenty four Utsi <laughs> de yur ime loka Utsi de yur ime loka Nakur yam kermache the praja Upa hanyamim praja if I do not work, if I do not engage myself in action, the worlds would perish. I, may, I will cause confusion and will ruin these living beings. The worlds would perish means, the stabili- Shankaracharya comments, the stability of the world, of civilization. You will upset the, the stability of civilization. People will um, start following me and may withdraw from action. If I withdraw from action, and then, then uh, what would uh, society and civilization come to uh, if people did not fulfill their duties and obligations and their role in society and all sort of withdrew from action to sit in a cave? Not possible for the majority of humanity. Once the Holy Mother, Masharada, she was telling one of the younger monks, Vivekananda, she said, um, Naren, Rakhal, Tarok, Vivekananda, Brahmananda, Shivananda. She said, my child, they are of such stature, they could live their lives meditating under a tree. It is for you that they spend their lives blood building these monasteries and for the generations who would come later on. So that's the standard. They don't need these monasteries. They don't need any of this they are the ones who can actually withdraw from action without any harm to their own spiritual life. But no, they did it for future generations of spiritual seekers and as an example to the world. Uh, they spent till the last moment. Vivekananda worked till the last moment. of, And all of them, they worked till the last moment of their lives. If I do not engage myself in action, Shankarasya I will be the cause of confusion. So people will be confused about their duties and obligations. If Krishna didn't do it, then why should I do it? Why should I earn money, support a family, do my job, and look after society, uphold morality and ethics, provide leadership, uh, fight against injustice? Why? The Lord Himself who came as an avatar didn't do it, so I won't do it either. No. praja. I would be the cause of destruction of... Of of praja means all beings, this this world and people. Remember, what he's referring to here is the doctrine of the avatara The avatara comes to help us, and so he's saying, what a travesty that would be, what a paradox that would be, tragic paradox that would be. I am supposed to help and raise civilization, and if I, I would be the cause of the destruction of civilization, if I did that, if I if I did not engage in action. Suppose Arjuna thinks, Yes, but if I get engaged in action, won't I become worldly again? Get trapped in the world? We think sometimes like that. Because we make a clear division between the sacred and the secular. Here is my spiritual life, and here is my worldly life. Sri Krishna wants us to erase that difference. What does he want us to do? He want us he wants us to spiritualize the whole of our life. Even the, m- the mundane actions. Remember, wherever we are, whatever we are doing, the truth is we are actually centered in God all the time. In the worst of times also, I will say shocking things, but it's not shocking from the Advaitic perspective. In the time of depression, in the time of sin also, in the time of the worst of circumstances in our life, when we think we are far away from spirituality and religion, you are perfectly centered in God. It makes perfect sense from Advaita philosophy, from from the uh, Advaita metaphysics. Only we don't know it. Only we don't know it. We are not aware of it. Psychologically, we are not centered in God. Psychologically, we are scattered in the world. That's why this problem happens. All we need to do is just take cognizance of a fact. Our relationship is not with the world that which changes continuously and that which does not change, the two cannot have a relationship. If at all this idea is true that the Atman, the self, is an unchanging reality, it is an obvious fact that the world is changing, everything is changing in the world, body is changing, our own minds are changing continuously, then I, the unchanging Atman, have no relationship with the world, with the body, with even the mind. No relationship at all. I am always centered in the Divine Self. Another thing. That which changes continuously is an appearance. That which is real does not change. Only problem is the real does not appear before us. That's why we think it's not there. The real, the Atman, pure being is always there. As a great philosopher, Bradley. uh, He was... I'm saying great philosopher because I've read a little bit about him. Nobody reads him nowadays. <laughs> he was an idealistic philosopher in the, uh, in at, at Cambridge or Oxford in the early part of the 20th century. He was an elder contemporary of Bertrand Russell. He wrote this book called Appearance and Reality. So at the very beginning he says, what appears is not real and the real never appears. It's a play on the two meanings of the English word appearance. Appearance means what you see here, that it has appeared to you. The second meaning of appearance is in the sense of depe- deceptive. Uh, so that person appears to be trustworthy. What am I saying? Not trustworthy. Mm-hmm. So appearance is deceptive. So appearance is t- has two meanings. Has two meanings. One is what is what you are experiencing. That's appear, the world appears to us. Second meaning is deceptive. But appearance means appears as something as it is really not. So the reality never appears. What appears is not real. When I, We had this old book, Appearance and Reality, in our library. And uh, I was a novice at that time. Um, this was um, 20 years ago. Um, so I was going to that book and I found it so Vedantic. But I thought it's difficult. So I thought, who will teach it to me? We had a professor, a retired professor, come in to teach us Western philosophy. A very nice, old, ma- uh, very interesting old man, uh, Nirad Baran Chakravarti. He's passed on since. He was a disciple of Swami Abhedananda. So you have a connection to Swami Abhedananda here. <laughs> um, so I asked him, but Sir, would you consider tutoring me in this book, Appearance and Reality? And he was so delighted. This old professor, he looked, he, had, he was short with big eyes. He said, Oh, Maharaj, that's what they call him. Maharaj, you want to study this? Nobody wants to read it anymore. <laughs> Nobody wants to read these books anymore. Of course, if you want to read it, I'll, I'll, I'll help you. So he would give up his afternoon siesta. <laughs> Very big sacrifice. He would come to teach us, and we would give him a room to take rest before the class. So That rest time, he gave it up to teach me. And uh, we went through about half the book. Appearance and reality. There are two parts of the book. First part is appearance second part is reality. We never got to reality, <laughs> but <laughs> the appearance part I read. And I'll share something interesting. A uh, couple of months ago, I was at, at Harvard in the philosophy class there. Um, in the class, suddenly the professor asked, and the, all these guys are very smart people, they are all um, all doing graduate work. So the professor asked, um, by the way, has anyone here read Bradley? And I was the only one who raised my, <laughs> <laughs> and he was so delighted he said, "Look, <laughs> you've read it. And uh, we had a little back and forth, and he said, "I recommend it strongly to all of you, you should re- if you're going to understand Buddhism, you should read Bradley. Yeah. So appearance in reality, what appears is not real what uh, what is real never appears. What appears to us, world and people and duties and action, is an appearance. It's not real. And what is real, the self, Uh, the pure consciousness, pure being which we are, it never appears as an object to you. Uh, That's always there. So we are always choicelessly centered in divinity. We are always there. Being centered in divinity, deal with this appearance. Dealing with this appearance is what is called work. What's your problem? No harm will come to you. That's what Krishna is telling. How should you work? He says, as people in the world work with great attachment and desire and tension and anxiety, do you do the same activities? You may work in, you may take care of a family, do your job in, our com- in the community, in the corporation, in your co- in your company. Um, and do all that work but in an enlightened fashion as an enlightened being how? like this Uh, as I'm always centered in divinity he says did we read this? 25? 24 we have read so 25 is coming next he will tell how should I work then? suppose I have to work and you're an enlightened person how do you work then? or you are a spiritual seeker on the path of enlightenment you are afraid to get entangled in the world again then how should you work 25 sakta karmanya so sakta karmanya karmanyavidvanso yatha kuruvanti bharata yatha kuruvanti bharata kurya vidvans tatha sakta kurya vidvans tatha sakta Chikir Shuloka Sangraham Chikir Shuloka Sangraham Just as ordinary people in the world work with so much attachment, Saktaha, become so attached. I will do this and get this. And therefore they work. Do you also do the work? Which work? Oh, I am an enlightened being. I will only teach Vedanta. But nothing else. That's the only work for me. No. Whatever is in front of you. Whatever is in front of you, do that. If teaching Vedanta is in front of you, do that. But if, if holding a job and taking care of a family or uh, running an organization is in front of you, teaching in class is in front of you, do that. Which place is apart from God? Okay. So, d- do that. But, kurya sakta. you do that without attachment. Without attachment. Being centered in the divinity. Do that without attachment. They do it with attachment. They want something out of it. But then why should I do it? What's the purpose? Jikir lokasangraham, Loka sangram, Desiring the welfare of all beings. All beings. Loka Sangram means welfare of all beings. Let all be happy. Let all be without disease. Let all overcome uh, obstructions in their lives. And the old Sanskrit prayers, Vedic prayers are there. All. Not just me and mine. Then that's samsara. It becomes samsara again. Be a well-wisher to everybody in the world, including people you might think, oh, they are enemies or they don't like me, including them too. They are no different from anybody else and they are all nothing other than God. God in all of those forms. So you you seek to do welfare. Why should I do welfare to God? God doesn't need welfare. All right. You worship God in those forms. That's your worship. Worship does not only mean flowers and incense and mantras. It can also mean go go to class and teach kids. It can mean medicines and nursing given to a uh, patient. Literally, the divinity is in front of you all our lives. Our only tragedy is not the so-called tragedies which we are uh, which we keep on complaining about. Mm-hmm. Sri Ramakrishna says, Who weeps for God? People weep buckets of tears. For the children and for money he has found out the two main things which cause tears. Children and money. (laughs) (laughs) Who weeps for God? So you work desiring their welfare. Or you can work as worship of the Lord in all of these forms. Then one more verse. I think Madhusudan Saraswati says this wait a minute, I have realized the world is an appearance, that the divinity alone is real existence, consciousness bliss, I am the witness consciousness, and realizing this one gets enlightened and free from all sufferings. So if I really want to help people, I will liberate them from their sufferings. So my work should basically be give endless Vedanta classes. Right? Why why should I do anything else? Why should I do anything else? Tell them, Hey, don't run after um, money or uh, sense pleasures or the the fleeting vanities of this world. The beginning of of, um, imitation of Christ. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, except uh, to love the Lord, to worship the Lord. So that was the core idea of every religion. So why should I not do that? Why should I, what's the nee- need for uh, schools and colleges and homeless shelters and uh, uh, social activism? Why should I need all that? Why do I need to do all that? He says here, 26th verse, very important. <laughs> na buddhi vedam janayet, na buddhi vedam janayet, karma sanginam, karma sanginam. Joshaet Sarva Karmani Joshaet Sarva Karmani Vidwan Yukta Samacharan Vidwan Yukta Samacharan Yukta, being centered in the, your divine self. Na buddhivedam Janait. Do not confuse people. Do not throw them into confusion. Whom? Karma Sanginam. Those who are worldly and they are headlong pursuing worldly success and fame and pleasure and anyway, they haven't asked you. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So, don't confuse them. What is confusion? Madhusudan Saraswati says, confusion is you know all this you are pursuing? It will not give you any pleasure. It will not give you any satisfaction. Uh, it is all maya. Rather, you are existence, consciousness, bliss, that which you are looking for is within yourself. Realize that and be happy. Stop doing these things. Now, what will happen is they will not be able to reach enlightenment. They will not be able to progress spiritually. And what they wanted to do in life, that also, because if you are truly, if you have some depth in spiritual life, when you speak, because these words are true, it echoes in people's minds. And what it does first is uh, it harms them. It d- it um, weakens their, uh, um, you know, their one-pointed focus on the world. Somewhere inside it, um, it throws them into confusion. They will still go to the world, but with weakened resolve, they will try to be spiritual with with, with no results at all, and it will be a mess. Rather, what did Sri, Sri Swami Vivekananda said? If you are able to help, then take everybody wherever they are and give them an upward lift yes you want money wealth yes you know your spirituality what do you say from a spiritual perspective all very good but do it ethically uh, whatever you can get through your own hard work within the limits of morality and ethics that's good and once you get it try to see how you can help others don't you see you, you will get much more happiness that way now that's wha- you have not stopped that person from trying to become a millionaire or make a killing on the stock exchange go ahead but now you p- try to guide him towards philanthropy and um, selflessness uh, and expansion of the self. If you had said, stop, no good there, come to the ashram, to the mountains, I'll find a cave for you, sit there and meditate and realize that you are Brahman, won't work. Even the greatest of things, monasteries, that, that beautiful, I'll end with that, I've told this earlier, Um, one of Swami Vivekananda's disciples asked him um, can you tell me about Maya Swami Vivekananda was very pleased with him and said ask me for a boon and he said explain Maya to me Swami Vivekananda said ask something else (laughs) then the disciple persisted it's in the complete works of Swami Vivekananda he persisted and he said if with a guru like you I don't get an answer to this question I'll never get an answer to this question then Vivekananda started speaking and he talked f- at length for some time, and the disciple just records how he sat in stunned silence. And he says, literally, the w- room around me began to whirl and disappear into a light where Vivekananda also disappeared, my body had also disappeared, but only the voice went on, Vivekananda's voice. And at one point, I shouted out, But Swami, all your work, even the Ramakrishna mission, these monasteries you're building, all of this is also Maya. This is also illusion. This is also Maya. This is not real either. And Vivekananda said, oh, at that point, he said, a tho- a s- another thought came to me. The Bengali, he had used the Bengali diminutive. In Indian languages, there are different ways you address people. You know, like you and thou. and th- So in Bengali, he should have said apni to Vivekananda because Vivekananda was his guru. That's how you address a revered person, a senior um, maybe somebody older than you in age or seniority or in some way equals you say to me and of course yeah, there, there's another one tui, which is to maybe children or somebody who's very dear to you so he had said to me the one which you use for equals to Vivekananda and he the moment the thought came to him the whole thing vanished and he uh, found Vivekananda sitting there and, and looking down at him and smiling and saying he had said all this is illusion it's all Maya wha- even what you are doing all this Math and everything you are building Vivekananda said yes and if you can realize this and meditate and be absorbed in Brahman go ahead and do it or if you cannot then come and help in this work yeah. Hinduism Vedanta is a very graded path It's a very graded path you can start with moral life With a little bit of religion and uh, observances and ethics and temples. All the way up the same path. Takes you all the way up to who am I? Mm -hmm. Uh, Ramana Maharshi is sitting in the cave and telling find out who you are. And that solves every problem. In between is meditation, is devotion, um, yoga, tantra. So many things are there. The entire spectrum is there. And it's all good and useful. But for whom and where? So the enlightened person may not need that work. But still, it's good for the others. And how do you do that work? Do that work just like everybody else does it. Don't be strange. Don't be like, I've come to the office, but don't think I'm like you. I'm actually, though you don't see it, I'm pure consciousness. (laughs) Only acting in this, through this body and mind for your welfare. You're going to get called to human resources very fast. <laughs> <laughs> very soon. <laughs> Sri Krishna says, as they do it, as you have been doing it, keep on doing that. The wisest and the most enlightened people. Gaudapada says Mandukya Karika. After enlightened, behave like a fool, he says. <laughs> Just be like everybody else. Don't. Everybody is Brahman, which you are. So why do you have to glorify this one particular body and mind and say, here is this enlightened person? No. Just as they are. But internally you are completely different. You are centered in your divine self. You know Aham, Ramhasmi, you know that. And you act in the world. Encourage them in every action. Moral action, ethical action. That is what Vivekananda said. Give them an upward lift. Give them an upward lift if you can, wherever you are. Believe in the potential, the spiritual potential of all beings, that everybody can be better, physically, morally, mentally. This entire wellness movement across the Western world and now spreading across the world. Very good. If you look at the Vedantic perspective, uh, it's for for the good of many. You might say that's not particularly spiritually high. It's just a fit body and good. Wherever they are, from that a little higher. And inject a little few uh, few higher ideas. That There is something beyond this also. Something higher than this. I have seen I, I was at a yoga ashram l- until yesterday in the Bahamas. And um, hundreds of young people from all over the world. Their main attraction is not a Vedanta talk. I was giving Vedanta talks. And they have not come there for Brahman or Atman. Or They have come, they come there for the um the downward dog and the, this <laughs> is <laughs> the asanas, <laughs> and the pranayamas. But good, I love. I like the way it has the whole thing has been arranged. That yes, you come for the yoga course, do the yoga course, but sit for the evening arati, uh, 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 sing in the bhajans, sit for the morning and evening meditation, and listen to the uh, Vedanta talks. Uh, we used to say when we became monks earlier. Uh, when w- w- early when we were monks when d- we just started in this life Vedanta classes were difficult for us and all the Swamis would sit around but they would insist that the newcomers would just sit, look at the text read the text, sit and listen. They would call it uh, purification of the years <laughs> in Bengali, Karnoshuddhi <laughs> Alright So this actually completes the uh, topic Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Rama Krishna Rupa namastu.